you guys doing today? Yeah. Ah, genuinely you get woos in youth group. Um, cool. So, a couple questions for you guys. Who knows what today is? Thank you, youth, for raising your hands. Parents are out here like, yeah, Palm Sunday. Yeah, it's Palm Sunday. It's Youth Sunday, but it's also Palm Sunday. And um, anybody know what happened on Palm Sunday? Jesus, gosh. Youth. <laughs> Classic youth group answer. Anybody? Anybody? Bam, the triumphal entry. Yeah. So when I found out that I was teaching on Palm Sunday, I was like, oh, all right, I guess I'll have to teach on the triumphal entry. Because when I was a kid, I kind of had some, some misconceptions about it. And, um, and since I became a Christian, it was just one of those things that whenever I read the stories, I was like, yeah, that's all right. I guess it's just how Jesus got into Jerusalem to go die. So <laughs> I was like, it never really hit me. So I, I, I just started to pray and I was like, God, just, just open the scriptures up to me. And, and he's so faithful and he totally did. And uh, he just showed me a couple of uh, really, really beautiful truths. Um, and I'm going to share some of those with you guys today. So if you guys will open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, um, if you'll allow me to go on a tangent here for a second. Uh, when I teach, I don't really teach with uh, PowerPoints, as you guys will notice, because it's, um, I feel like it's, it's a little bit of a shame that, that, especially with younger folks, that we don't really get the opportunity to learn how to navigate through a Bible. So um, pull out your Bible. If you, if you have a Bible at home, bring it to church. It's a great place to have your Bible. Um, if not, there should be one in front of you. So you guys should all be about Luke 19. Cool. Um, I'm going to start in verse 28, and we're going to go down to verse 40. Uh, Is everybody there? All right, I'm starting without you if you're not. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go to the village ahead of you and enter into it. You will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. I'm going to stop there for a second. I've heard pastors say in the past, I don't think Pastor John ever said it, but I've heard pastors say in the past that like, that's the same as like going up and stealing somebody's Lamborghini and being like, oh, God needs it. It's okay. But it's not like that at all. And don't let anybody fool you. It's like you walk outside and somebody's breaking into your like old dingy Pinto and you're like, what are you doing? Because this has probably happened to you before. And they're like, uh... Jesus needs it? And you're like, all right, I mean, he can get it to run. Can you just bring it back later? Like, you guys, it's a colt. It's like, it's a baby donkey that's never been ridden before. Yeah, I, anyway, sorry. This is my tangent. Um, Picking up in verse 32. It says, those who were sent ahead of him went and found it just as he had told them. They were untying the colt, uh, and its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it? They brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began began joyfully praising God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So we're going to stop there. Um, one thing that's beautiful 
that God, you guys, God is just such a poet. Jesus was, uh, was crucified. Oops, did I give away the story? Uh, Jesus was crucified on the 15th day of the Jewish month, which is called Nisan. Um, it's spelled Nisan, but I feel more scholarly if I say Nisan. So he was, he was crucified on the first day of Passover, which was the 15th day of Nisan. Uh, and Jewish days started at the sundown of the day before, which means his last supper was on Thursday evening, which was the 14th day of Nisan, which four days before that is the 10th day of Nisan and Palm Sunday. And you guys are like, why are you telling me this? This is dumb. But I would like everybody to open to uh, Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to read verses 3. Then we're going to skip down to 4, or excuse me, 5, and then 6. If you're not there, that's okay. It says this. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Skip down to verse five. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. You may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all of the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. You guys, this is beautiful. What's happening here as Jesus is riding this baby donkey into the east side of Jerusalem there are ancient prophecies being fulfilled. And God is doing beautiful things in this, in the seemingly menial task of, of going into a city. And it's just beautiful. Now, you may have noticed in the, uh, in the Luke narrative that it m- mentions nothing of palms for which this Sunday is named after. And for that, I'll direct your attention to Matthew 21, verse 8. You don't have to open there. I'll read it. Um, it's the same story. And just because Luke doesn't talk about palms and, and Matthew does, doesn't make anyone less true. But this is what it says. It's Matthew 21, 8 and 9. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Those crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now for me, when I was reading these things, it was kind of just like, all right, people got jackets and palm branches and stuff like that, and I didn't really understand it. So, you know, I kind of, um, I kind of just prayed and asked God to study the scriptures, and this is a palm branch. I stole it from my neighbor's tree this morning on my way here. That's okay. God needs it, right? I'll bring it back. Um, So this is what they look like. And I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. Like, why would anybody do that? But to really understand the full effect of what was happening here, we kind of have to go about 450 years back from Jesus' day, which is about 2,500 years ago from today, to to a point in time when there was a fellow whose name was Antiochus. And uh, he was a Greek ruler, and he chose to take up the surname Epiphanes, which means the visible God. So this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, thought he was Jupiter, and um, thought that everyone should worship him. I mean, if you're a god, I guess that's what you would think. Actually, his subjects ended up calling him Antiochus Epimenes, which is the Greek word for madman, because he was a little bit crazy. He was so crazy, in fact, that he decided to eradicate all other religions, especially 
the Jews. He really didn't like them. So what he did is he went in and he sold thousands upon thousands of Jewish families into slavery. He made circumcision punishable by death, which meant no new males could be entered into the old covenant before God. He, um, he uh, desecrated the temple and, uh, and on top of it all, he took a pig, which are the most ceremonially unclean animals to the Jews, and he slaughtered it on the altar, thus making the whole temple unclean, and Jews couldn't go into it. And he's like, sweet, I just eradicated Judaism. I'm awesome, or whatever. I don't know. But there was this family named the Maccabees. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of them. And they're like, what are we letting this happen for? Is someone going to defile the house of the living God? So what they did is they stormed into the temple, locked themselves into it. Meanwhile, Antiochus Epimenes surrounds the whole temple with guards, and they go in and ceremonially wash and clean everything. And the only thing that they could find untouched was a single bottle of oil, which would have kept the menorah or the everlasting lamp lit for one day. It wasn't supposed to go out. But God miraculously provided, and that one bottle of oil lasted for eight days, which is where we get the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. Um, and after those eight days, they, they exited the temple and just slaughtered all of these other uh, Roman and Greek soldiers. And they just, they just wiped them out, and they're like, who's going to stand against the living God? And after that, after their victory, they went down and they cut palm branches— and in that moment, in that one specific moment, a palm branch became a symbol of victory. And for the next 450 years, the Jewish culture took this as a sign of victory over their enemies. They even minted coins with them. So to a first century Jew, when somebody comes and cuts down palm branches and waves them high and lays them before a particular man, it sends a very clear message. We win and you lose. And the beautiful thing is these Jews didn't even understand what was really going on. They thought that it was Rome that Jesus was coming to destroy. But give it another 37 years and Rome falls on its own accord. Jesus came to destroy something much more permanent. Sin and death and evil and the devil himself. And what these people were saying with their palm branches spoke way more than the words ever could. And it's beautiful. So I was just reveling in this, and I was like, oh, that's so cool. But what about these cloaks? And I was like, that's kind of weird. So to kind of illustrate, I happened to bring, if I could get it, my cloak. Yeah, huh? You guys know you're impressed. This is my cloak. I'll give you a little bit of a story on this. A couple years ago, me and Nathan Jones, who's in Hawaii right now, Nathan, uh, and Corey Stocks were watching this movie um, called Luther, which is, uh, you guessed it, about Martin Luther, and it was super awesome. And there's this one scene where Martin Luther is uh, riding on a horse in a, going to a monastery, and it's raining, and he's wearing a, a, a black cloak, and we're like, that's the coolest thing we've ever seen. We need black cloaks. So we set out, so we set out, like five of us, to go to Joanne's, which is the most <laughs> masculine place for five male teenagers to go, and since we were entirely broke, and Kip was just mostly broke, um, we made Kip buy us, like, what was it, like 40 yards of fabric? 
fur to line the insides and long fur around the, around the, the edges to make us look more noble and, um, and um, burlap to make these cloaks. Now, another tangent, not that I'm already on one right now. If you ever walk into a church and somebody's teaching in a hooded robe, get out. Not right now. Right now we're okay. But in any other circumstance, it's bad, bad news. Um, anyway, that is all to say that this robe here is, is not too unlike a robe of a Jewish, uh, of a first century Jew. Um, theirs probably wouldn't have been lined in fur, um, and probably wouldn't have had a hood, and I sure hope didn't have these kind of sleeves, because this is really unmanageable. Um, but it's, it's pretty similar. And the cool thing about the cloak in the Jewish first century is that it wasn't like our clothes. You never went and bought them. It was made for you. The fabric that it was made of was either the fabric that your family made or whatever you could afford. It was made by the woman of the household. So it showed, showed the amount of skill and ability of your wife or your mother or yourself if you were a woman and, and its color if you were lucky enough to have it dyed was a color of your choosing. And it was what you liked and what you wanted to be seen in. The quality of the material showed your position in life. Its length showed what you did. If, it, if you didn't have to work with your hands, if you were a tax collector or, or a noble or a scribe or a Pharisee, it would go all the way to the floor. But if you had to do manual labor, it would probably come up to about your knees for mobility. In effect, your robe was kind of your identity. There's some people walking in here and they're like, why is that guy wearing a cloak? It's awesome. But to, to get even further than this, we're going to have to go even further back into Jewish history, all the way back to the book of 2 Kings. You don't have to open to it, but the story's awesome. It's in chapter 9. I'll just kind of uh, paraphrase, if you'll allow. There's this guy, his name is Jehu, and he's a commander in the military of the northern kingdom, and uh, he's got some friends and they're all just kind of goofing around. And far away, there's this prophet, and God speaks to this prophet, and he says, hey, I've anointed Jehu king over Israel, and this prophet's an old guy, so he's like, all right, well, I can't go tell him, so he sends this younger prophet. He's like, hey, go book it, and tell Jehu that, he's an, I've, that God's anointed him king. So this young prophet runs all the way over, and he's like, Jehu, Jehu, I need to talk to you, and he's like, what do you want? And he's like, I need to talk to you, let's go. So they go into a room, he anoints his head with oil, and he's like, this is what the Lord God says, I anoint you king over Israel. And then he's like, deuces, I'm out of here, runs back. And then Jehu walks back out, and he's like, just got anointed king over Israel. And he's like, what's going on? So he walks out, probably oil all over him still. And his friends are like, what did that lunatic want to do with you? And then Jehu kind of sticks up for him, and he's like, you know what kind of man that was and what sort of message he had? And they said, that's a lie, tell us. And he's like, all right, you really want to know? This is what he said. He said, the Lord God anoints you king over Israel. And then I've got it written down over here. We pick it up in verse 13. And it says this. They quickly took their cloaks off and spread them under his bare steps. Then they blew the trumpets and shouted, Jehu is king. Laying your cloak on the floor is what you did in the presence of the king. You guys get it? It's beautiful. These people are, in effect, taking everything they have, their, their family and their marriage or their singleness, 
and their, their, their possessions and their personal preferences and their job and everything they have and they're laying it down at the feet of Jesus. And in the same time, silently declaring Jesus is king. It's beautiful, you guys. And that brings us to the third party of people here, which is our good old friends of Pharisees. Um, scholars, just brilliant men. They knew, they knew the Old Testament backward and forward. And when they saw these things, the scripture tells us that they got really upset. <laughs> I guess rightly so, at least in their head. They saw these palm branches and they're like, this is it. The Romans know what this means. They're going to come away and take our place of authority. And they must have been so angry when they saw this because they knew the scriptures and they knew what this meant. Now, I have a thing for names, personally. I really like names, and I really like names with significant meanings. Um, so I looked up the name Jehu, and it's a Hebrew name, obviously, and it means he is God. Not referring to Jehu, but referring to God. Really, it means he is Yahweh. And these, these Pharisees must have, must have seen the connection. They must have seen what it meant when these people laid down their cloaks in front of Jesus. They must have caught on that they're saying, they're putting Jesus on par with Jehu. They're putting Jesus on par with he is God. They're saying that Jesus is God. And they got angry. And, and Luke 9.39, or Luke 19.39 tells us that they, they approached Jesus and said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. It's beautiful because they knew that these weren't their disciples. And they knew that, that by the authority that Jesus had, these people weren't following their ways that were heavy and burdensome anymore. And they, they were subtly, albeit whether or not they liked it or not, were saying that Jesus had authority. And, and, and they said, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. And he turns to them and he says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And I wonder personally if these were some of the same Pharisees that spoke to John the Baptist. And he said, what did you come out here to see? You think you're good because you're the children of Abraham, but I tell you, God could, God could raise children of Abraham from the very stones. I wonder if they started to get it. They didn't see Jesus in the, prof the prophetic messianic view that the people did. They thought that he was a demon-possessed, drunkard, Galilean, and that it would be better if he just died. They didn't understand that instead of ushering in the king, they were trying to snuff out these prophecies. But what Jesus was saying is by, by, by telling them that the stones would cry out if the people stayed quiet, is that whether or not they liked it, whether or not they tried to fight it, the prophecies that were being fulfilled would be fulfilled. And the beautiful thing is, is Jesus said he's coming back. Jesus is here. Which means our lives get to be lived ushering in the king. Our lives get to be fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 9 that, says, that says, Behold, O Israel, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. We get to live our lives 
fulfilling prophecies and ushering in Jesus into every situation that we have. And we have options. We can do it with a palm branch and say, you guys, come look at my Jesus who saved me. My victor over sin and death, the one who conquered everything that kept me from him. And I think it should be. And I think sometimes it should be coming and laying everything we have before the feet of Jesus and saying, praise be to the one and only king worthy of, of everything. God, God, I know that you are, you are good and, and these days are evil and I just lay everything I have, everything that I am down at your feet because you are my king. But we also have the option of, of being like the Pharisees and then ushering Jesus in as if by a leash and saying, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Jesus, heal my family, heal my marriage. God, I want more money or a a better job or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or I just want things to be okay. And forget that we're ushering in a sovereign king. The choice is ours and, and what we choose to do with Jesus is the most important thing we'll ever do. 